The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast in which I, one of your hosts, Tyler, knows these books and tries to guide you through them. And I am joined, of course, by Greg, my co-host, who is being guided, but somehow seems to know just as much as I do on most weeks. Greg, how are things? I'm good. I don't know how much I know this week. We are uh, in a very timey-wimey, we talked last night, but also in the future type moment. So who knows what will happen uh, as this conversation unfolds. But as always, I'm very excited to be here talking about books. We are closing out summer as this goes live. And, you know, there's nothing better than at the end of summer kind of cramming in as much free time reading as you can before work takes back over spoken like the spoiled academics we are but yeah. uh yeah my wife who does not have an academic job hates she's like yeah you know how you're sad you're going back to work that's me all summer all the time so so i try to be sensitive but also i'm trying to read as much as i can so it was a pleasure to have three chapters this week um to discuss for uh this book and my notebook fell closed so let's see if i get I can get the titles we have chapter 18 healing Chapter 19, Awakening, and Chapter 20, Visitations, all, of course, from Book 3, The Dragon Reborn. Now, before I throw to you for your first synopsis, we should remind people that on Fridays uh, in the month of August, uh, we have been doing a recap series on the Wheel of Time television show Season 1, and that wraps up two sweet little days from now with Episode 4, which covers... uh, episode seven and eight yep. this, like years of star wars fandom has prepared me for this uh cross episode <laughs> numbering thing um and so we hope people have joined us on that journey if not um steal a free month of prime ask the internet for a password to borrow uh dm tyler directly maybe uh and uh enjoy some uh wheel of time uh and then uh listen to us yammer on about it the episode dropping in two days has a first for our podcast a woman, which thank God we finally got somebody who's not a dude bro to talk to us about. I I thought you were going to say a first for our podcast, the reveal of one of our social media accounts passwords. You have two more days to change that before that goes live (laughs) because I'm not editing it. Uh, I I totally forgot about that. I think that we are at this point kind of in a, a really exciting point for the podcast because we are kind of getting to branch out a little bit. We're getting into the part of the books that I get really excited about. And so to some degree, I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, let's take the momentum from that fun podcast episode we just did two days ago go about the television show and direct all of that energy at three 
really remarkably short chapters, but still, I think, pretty interesting. And we will begin today with chapter 18, Healing, the shortest of our three very short chapters. So in Healing, Egwene is led into the basement of the tower. She is told that this is where they keep some of the most powerful artifacts, and this is where the Black Aja originally tried to break into. Um, she is basically told not to think about the Black Aja at all by Sherium. Um, and then we learn that there are several Sedai who will be participating in the healing. Some of them are names that we've recognized. Um, Varen and Suan and Liana are all there. Um, but we also get a few new names, including Seraphel and Alana, which if you've been watching the show, Alana is a character that you may know pretty well. Um, we then get to actually see the process of the healing. Uh, the Amerlin uh, takes out a white wand that she says is the most powerful Sangreal that they have in the tower. She then says that she will direct the flows, and it seems as if all of the women are contributing power to one thing that the Amerlin is doing, rather than them each doing something individually. As they are doing this, both Nynaeve and Egwene comment on how much power is being channeled and kind of the temptation to want to channel that much. At this point, Matt starts screaming and then starts screaming in another language. Eventually, the dagger is separated from him, he quiets, and then when someone asks what was Matt screaming about they basically say oh he was giving orders to soldiers in a 2000 year old battle and that is the entirety of the chapter healing so normally I go on for three or four times that long before you get a chance to talk Greg what were your thoughts on this chapter I think interesting a few little hints here and there but kind of so brief I was surprised it wasn't combined with the following chapter uh, I didn't listen to any of that. I was changing our password. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a theme for the night is, um, you know, it, it almost feels like on one of these prestige television shows where you're like, you really needed to make a two hour movie and you made a, a 10 episode miniseries. Yeah. And so it does feel like kind of all these things are really spread out. Uh, by far the most compelling part, I thought, is um, the presence of the old blood to kind of summarize yeah. all those different things that. Uh, kind of brought Matt out of character and gave us an idea that something else is going on here. So um, that was really interesting and is particularly how that gets expanded upon in the next two chapters as well. Still trying to maintain the separate aspects yeah. of this. Um, so, you know, we, we, we said last week and I think the week before, actually, that it felt like this is just making sure we catch up with these characters to the events of the last book. And this is still kind of handling the fallout but I think then the turn becomes, let's start to set up something new for this character, Matt, who's, you know, I, I'm not here to say the issue of the dagger is forever settled, but essentially that plot line seems closed and we have a new plot line opening up. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the way to think of this. Is it's very much a transition kind of set of chapters where we almost go from a world in which Matt is a very minor character to one in which he seems to be one of the main players very, very quickly. Um, in my mind, there are kind of two big things in this chapter that I want to highlight. You've already kind of talked about one of them, right? I think that this um, idea of the old blood of Matt speaking kind of in an ancient dead tongue. And then interestingly, I think the fact that it is kind of military speak that is what we get referenced here. Um, I find that to be especially interesting given that Matt 
I, I think of all five of the two rivers characters is the one who has been least fleshed out at this point. And so that I think is a turn I really didn't expect. So we're kind of taking this chapter a little bit backwards, starting at the end. But what was your kind of what, what stood out to you about that kind of Matt and the old blood section? You said that was the piece that you enjoyed. Were there any particular moments or I guess what 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 attracted you to that as opposed to for me, I, I actually found myself more interested in the I said side of the chapter so you talk about the matt stuff and then i can get into the white tower politics later um i just like blood and no uh um i think uh and i'm being careful here so um the way they position his character as seemingly on the wrong side of the war right yeah that if he is speaking from pure old manatharan blood the ancient lines um he should be an ally of the Aes Sedai yeah. but he speaks of them with great um suspicion and so it appears that he's either somebody who was not Manatharan or was disloyal in some way right yeah and I think that bit of intrigue is really great but also like how the heck do you figure this out because it's all thousands of years ago so it's it's both like saying we're going to unravel this, but also in a way that you're like, how? Like, how do we figure this out? How do, Is there going to be like a series of hy hypnosis events or something uh, as a part of that? <laughs> uh, first off, this is a book where we've had like 18 dream chapters. Don't rule out the hypnosis <laughs> plot line. That is definitely possible. Uh, <laughs> I, I think for me, what's interesting about this is, is kind of the intersection between the two forces in Matt, because you're right to identify that um, kind of this Manatharan, um, like the the descendants that Matt actually has should be allies of the Aes Sedai. But then the other force operating inside of him is the taint of Shadar Lagoth, which is a place that basically tore itself to pieces due to its hate of Aes Sedai. And so this, I think, is the interesting question. Is this kind of the last vestige of the, the taint of Shadar Lagoth that leaves him as this healing is done? Is this a sign that there is still something tainted in terms of his link to Sadar, Shadar Lagoth? Or as you're saying, is it possible that even without any of that link to Shadar Lagoth, Matt's kind of link to the old blood is too, as you say, someone traitor or someone who doesn't have the the well-being of at least the Aes Sedai uh, in their forefront in the way that someone from Manatharan traditionally would. So I think this is kind of setting up an interesting mystery. But as you say, I have absolutely no idea what clues you get in a 2,000-year-old mystery. Yeah, and, and I mean, what have we learned from Robert Jordan except that this is something we should trust him on like yeah. he wouldn't introduce something unless he had a way to do it and had a way to develop it and and pull us along um while some of the mysteries have red herrings there's no red herring mysteries we'll pretend that works sure. where something that's introduced that goes nowhere or gets abandoned mm -hmm. or, or yeah. i don't think we've uh, we've seen one of those yet um but you know um i mean i to, and to back to your point i do think matt was the least involved of the five and you know the tv show kind of <laughs> demonstrated that as well yeah. and so now it's time to kind of have something fresh and new for him to do um and he's even kind of more thin here than the version of him we see on the television show who yeah. was given a bit more backstory uh which um was was a nice addition so okay let's now it's now it's just deep backstory as the case were 
Yeah, and I think that's kind of all we have to say about Matt, in part because we have two more Matt chapters coming, so we need to leave a little <laughs> bit for later. Um, the other side of the chapter healing that I think is interesting is we get just a little bit of a glimpse into the Aes Sedai, right? This is our first time that we see them actually using one of these massively powerful artifacts as opposed to just talking about them. Um, this is the first time that we've seen Aes Sedai kind of working together to wield more of the power seemingly than they would have been able to on their own. And interestingly, it seems as if they are gathering the most powerful of the Aes Sedai in one room, right? They're talking about not knowing whether or not they have enough power. So I found kind of the fact that we were getting a lot of the characters that we already were familiar with, and then a few new names that immediately made me go like, okay, I should jot down these names. I should think about who they are. Um, Anaya is mentioned. We have gotten a couple of vague references to her in the past, but the two actually new, like brand new names here are Seraphel and Alana. Um, neither of whom I think we've had mentioned before. It is worth noting uh, for those of you who have been watching the television show along with us, Alana is the green Aja character who is a friend of Moraine's, um, but she has yet to appear uh, in any serious way in the book. So I'm curious of all of these things, whether it's new characters, new artifacts, new kind of techniques, was there anything on the kind of Aes Sedai side of things that stood out to you in this chapter? Um, this is going to be insulting and I'll apologize in advance. It all kind of became noise at some point. Yeah. And I don't like that, but I think where it comes from is that I'm so focused on the characters we know. Um, you know, I, I think this can happen in fantasy when you world build out your institutions. Like, I don't mm -hmm. care what classes the Potter kids are taking or um, we have a little free library out front and one of those fantasy book series I've never read uh, the Patrick Rothfuss books just appeared and it was kind of a reminder of that that there's a lot of kind of history of the academy and th those books yeah. that that you're like you know it, it's not bad and I certainly don't mean that but I think in the drive to kind of say like I want to figure out what's happening with my characters a lot of that kind of becomes noise and so um, and and maybe I'm just betraying my deep deep sexism but um it was like okay a bunch more women who are Aes Sedai and you know uh again looking a little bit at the tv show thinking a little bit about where we've been in this this book so far I think it's clear there's more to be learned here and particularly I'm thinking of like the way the Amerlin seat kind of mapped out the factions and the yeah. the the threat of the black Aja that's really exciting. And yet I have trouble getting excited about like, here's three more women who will sometimes be in the hallways here. And, um, and then maybe the thing I will throw at Robert Jordan is we got to get uh, significantly different names. Um, yeah. Right. The, the Elaine, Egwene um, uh, pairing uh, and here where we have, you just said Alana, yeah. which sounds a lot like, you know, not all that far from Leandrin in my head and things like that. And, and Liana. So and Liana, yeah. So I think that's a little tricky for me. Um, yeah. I think I need something to prove they're more significant before I, and, and a separate name before I really kind of dig into them. Um, but I really want to make sure that it's clear. I think that's a personal failing of mine. Like, I think this is good stuff and important stuff. I just yeah. had trouble finding purchase in it. I want to give Min as a really good example of how Robert Jordan likes to introduce new characters, right? He gives them like a name drop in one chapter and then they get a scene five chapters later and then they get a POV a book later and then they become a main character two books after that, 
And so I think all I'm doing right here is just like putting a pin on like, be aware these are names who might show up in a book and a half, right? Like no need to be keeping an encyclopedia of Aes Sedai at this point. But like, that's kind of where I'm at is just like, these things are going to be thrown at you. And let's be real, there are going to be a bunch of important characters in this series. Let's just like start vaguely thinking their names every once in a while and we'll get there eventually. I, I maybe promise uh, it will not get better in terms of similar names. I'm so, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I have nothing else to say about the chapter healing. It was six pages in my edition. It advanced the plot. That's kind of what it did for me. Any last thoughts here before we get on to awakenings? Uh, one other note that I don't think we've really uh hit on is um you did mention that they're using a sangriel which is yep. the the middle tier right the it sort <laughs> of right so remember okay. tear angriel don't modify your power they do something else and so sangriel okay. are the top of the two that are comparable to each other if that makes okay sense. yeah they're on different scales kind of because yeah. they're different uh tasks um and, but alongside that the way in which um the power is described in that moment just that it's really pulling at a Gwaine and naive felt mm -hmm. significant to me so that's kind of the last thing i had in my notes that we didn't talk too much about is is they are there as witnesses kind of to help if if needed but they really feel that pull and so my question was is that just the power of the Sangriel and the power itself drawing everybody in? Or, you know, we've seen pieces of kind of chosen one narratives for these two women. Is this something to do with that, that they are so powerful that the objects crave them as well? Um, yeah. That is a really fantastic point that is phrased as a question about the future. And therefore, I can say nothing about it. <laughs> Chapter 19. Awakening. Awakening. <laughs> uh, Matt awakens uh he feels as if he has some kind of holes in his recollections he's not quite sure where he is and what was a dream or what wasn't um he thinks that loyal must have been a dream because ogier aren't real um he starts muttering something to himself in the old tongue and then immediately has kind of a visceral memory of an ancient battle that's described over the course of a page or so um he is apparently a general he is leading a battle against the trollocs and it seems to be a pivotal moment and he says that he is a gambler and it's time to toss the dice he kind of returns back to his own actual body realizes he is in tarvalan and realizes he is feeling kind of weak um he tries to stand finds an enormous tray of food and starts eating all of it rapidly very quickly um he kind of realizes that he must have been healed by the power. He doesn't like that idea and wishes he could have gotten out of it. And then there is a big old section where he reviews a lot of details that if you missed the last two books, it's important that you get them reviewed. He goes through <laughs> the Aja and what Rand is up to and the fact that I said I can't lie and so on and so forth. Um, eventually, he thinks that he wishes he could have seen any other city other than a one, one full of I said I and starts planning either his escape or his way to get somewhere else um he realizes abruptly that he has eaten all of the giant plate of food he then finally remembers that he blew the horn of valir starts singing a song about being in trouble resolves that he will just say that he's never seen the horn in his life and then the door opens which will of course lead us into the next chapter once again six to seven pages in my edition nothing really happens other than pushing that plot forward. What did you think about this one, which I think is most notable for being Matt Cawthon's first POV? First POV in the series. Correct. 
Wow. Excellent. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have Matt exclamation point at the top. I've started to make sure in my notes, I at least mark down whose POV we are at a given time. Um, this reminded me a lot of kind of an abandoned feeling I had at the end of the first book about Rand, that it Mm -hmm. felt like when Rand returned from the climax, he was actually someone different. And while I'm not sure I'm fully able to like abandon that entirely, it certainly didn't become a factor immediately if that were the case. Yeah. And so this felt very much like, Oh, did you think you were going to get to know Matt? Nope. He's now kind (laughs) of half possessed. Um, by an ancient version of himself, seemingly. Um, so, and this is the detail I almost ruined last chapter. I'm working real hard, single yeah, chapter it's listeners. A challenge. <laughs> um, but the fact the what was most compelling is this idea that he was a gambler. And I like the combination of he mm-hmm. was a leader and a gambler. I mean, when I think of cool World War II, World War One, any any war movies, it's like that's the character I want to follow, right? The guy who takes the big swings tries the crazy strategies and is a gambler not actually who i'd want to follow in battle to be clear uh but uh that's an exciting character type and again okay so now talking about what we were just talking about okay so now maybe we will be able to learn more about this ancient mystery because he's gonna have these kind of flash sideways i don't know it feels like that point in the the lost episodes or something um where it's like okay these are things that happened they're memories but they're not really flashbacks because they're kind of from someone different um you know it makes me think of record skips because we are you know the wheel metaphor has been you know really strong throughout and it's like oh what happens if you skip a groove um whereas the Rand interdimensional travel felt like separate records, but this feels like we're skipping in the same record. Yeah, I will note here, I think that was a really good kind of call out of the fact that this idea of being a general and a gambler is a really kind of fascinating combination. Um, I will note that uh, kind of tied up in that gambler metaphor is the chapter icon of this chapter, which is five dice. We are not doing an ill-advised visual media discussion of that because I want to wait for it a little bit. We will be talking about ill-advised discussion of the next chapter icon, which Greg didn't know until recently right now so he can prepare Uh, just opening my book and trying to find things yeah go ahead uh, the other thing that i really love about this um this sequence is that I like the idea that Matt is kind of finding these kind of ancient links to deep past or kind of an ancient version of himself at the same time that he is finding gaps in his own memory. And I think that just like at a almost like literary poetic level, I appreciate that. And I think it it works really well as a framing for this chapter of what memories is he missing and what memories has he gained is kind of really interesting data as you're saying we don't quite know who this matt coffin guy is especially if things are getting mixed up in his head and so that's the data that i found myself kind of really digging into is like how similar is this past life to matt and what does that mean about kind of what's missing and what it's been replaced by um i guess i'm just kind of restating your lost story but without referencing the show lost so i think i've made a better argument 
Oh, we're just losing all the lost heads. Uh, <laughs> are there any of those still? I I mean, I that's one of those shows that needs a better streaming deal, I think, to stay relevant. That's but fair. Yes. <laughs> uh, so if we are kind of thinking about that memory as kind of an interesting hint of things to come, we want to know more, but we don't have enough detail. Um, the other kind of odd thing that happens in this chapter, a new detail about Matt is boy can he eat and i don't know if we need to say anything else about that but it takes up enough of this chapter that i just need to leave you room to comment on matt being a hungry boy i guess <laughs> um yeah kind of two feelings i had about that first felt like um like we all get if we have like a stomach bug and you kind of come out of it and you're like, Oh my God, I haven't had any calories in three days and it's time to eat as much as I can. Yeah. Um, that came to mind. And you know, this is months long, if not a year long kind of shadow he's been under. So to come out and actually need calories makes sense in a lot of ways, yeah. but it also just had a little tinge on it that felt a little kind of zombie like, um, I'm actually listening to a, a live play role playing podcast where they're they're doing like bugs that get inside humans and mm. it's like a zombie thing. And it was like all I could think about because those the voice of the bugs on the show is going feed, feed, feed. And so it yeah. felt a little bit like that. So for me, it felt like even money that it's just kind of natural needing to catch up on lost time and or it's supernatural and uh, trouble is still ahead for Matt. Uh, this poor guy can't catch a break. Um, seems, you know, I, I know you're famously a parent guy and we you've joked before that there are no Rand guys. Uh, so, like, are there Matt people out there? Are you a Matt person as, as we listen, uh, listeners? <laughs> uh, I need to not say too much about this because obviously we have not gotten this character yet. But of the big five, if you will, I think there are probably the most Matt guys. Mm. Oh, and... You said guys, not people. <laughs> also probably accurate. <laughs> uh, okay, Ben Shapiro, thanks for calling in. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm interested to see where this goes because it does feel like we haven't gotten to know Matt. And I'm, now I'm repeating your point from last chapter. And so there's a lot more in play here. Um, I won't spoil my note for the end of the uh, next chapter, but it is related to the food. <laughs> Fair. Um, I think the only other thing that we get in this chapter that is worth comment on is Robert Jordan, I think, has finally reached the point where he is like, I am done overtly kind of minorly referencing all of the Aja and having you figure out whether you can count them. He just explicitly lists all seven in Matt's head for no reason other than to make sure readers have all seven Aja's in front of them. So it is worth taking the 30 seconds to review that because it's information that Robert Jordan is done doing anything other than just expositioning and moving on. <laughs> Red, they hunt down men who can channel. Blue, they have causes or are kind of spyish. Green, they go to war. They are the battle, Aja. Yellow, heal things. Brown, our scholar. Yellow and, or, I'm sorry, white and gray. No one has told us anything about them yet. They're kind of the ones that don't matter. <laughs> that is your lecture for the day. Anything to say mm. about just the random pile of exposition we get? I felt like this was just clunky is maybe why I'm, I'm bringing it up. Um, well, I guess I have a note here that 
kind of the way you phrased all of that is kind of dispelling this, but it felt like this was information um, Matt shouldn't necessarily have. That's fair. Yeah. So in this question of like, who's driving the Matt car, I was like, this feels like this is the gambler, the member of the heart guard. Like it's that guy who has this information. Um, And I think feeling that unsettling way, Matt is kind of slipping between the two. Um, actually is effective as the characters can use the knowledge together. Right. Yeah. And the only other thing in my notes we haven't gestured at, which is not that important um, is just that like, he's immediately worried about the horn. Yeah. That seems to merge the distrust of um, old Manatharan question mark, Matt mm-hmm. and current Matt that he knows he blew the horn. He knows that that gives him a sense of power, but he deeply distrusts what the Aes Sedai are doing with that. So it seems to me how I read all of that is just this character is unsettled, but that doesn't necessarily work to his disadvantage. Um, What it's uh, slaughterhouse five. The character is unstuck in time, right? That's kind of how he feels at this moment. I think that is a really great comparison that I can say nothing else about. Um, before we get into chapter 20 visitations, I think it's time that we do just a little bit of ill-advised discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast, talking about the chapter icon on chapter 20, which is a moon with four, I'm sorry, five stars on a black background. And I will say, I want to hear your thoughts on the image. I want to hear your breakdown. And I will say... If you figured out what this was, it is possible from the text of the book, but it's a pretty obscure deep cut. So I want to hear what you think this might symbolize before I tell you. Uh, Obviously, uh, what stands out most is the five stars, right? And the fact that we have these five characters we've been uh, tracing their journeys of that, that stood out. Um, Just in terms of composition, because this is usually something we talk about, Black dominates, right? It's kind Mm -hmm. of a a black field that the white stars and moon are set upon with kind of thick outlines that break the frame. Um, But to me, that means, you know, light in the darkness or a hope in a dark uh, space or something along those lines. Um, The only other thing I'll say is I there's a part of me and I'm not a graphic designer, but I really wanted the five stars to complete the circle perfectly. And they're kind of frustratingly not, which to my eye almost gives the moon like a sense of momentum, like the moon's pulling away or something like that. I'm not going to ascribe that intention to the artist, but it is kind of unsettling that it isn't a perfect circle or there's not a harmony to it. It's, it's off. Uh, Do you have any idea what this might symbolize at the beginning of a chapter? You see this and you are about to read about, not really. I mean, Tyler's picking on me because I said I read these a week ago before my yeah. vacation. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even remember what was in this chapter. Uh, uh, I know we have a visit from an old friend, uh, mm-hmm. Celine. Yep. And so kind of whenever there's a new icon, I tend to think like, oh, this is what's going to represent her. Now I'm, I'm stepping all over your summary. She also identifies that she is not a dark friend. She is other Yep. And so could this be the other symbol? Uh, you are actually being too general. Uh, this is just the Celine slash Lanfear symbol. Um, okay. If 
you will recall, this is a pretty deep cut. Uh, in the previous book, Rand gets into a little bit of a thing where he is throwing away letters with a bunch of different uh, emblems and stamps on them when he is in Carrion. The letters that he receives from Celine have this symbol as the uh, thing that is stamped into the the wax on her letters. It's it's a, a moon and five stars. So I have no idea what that symbolizes or all of the great things that you said about the circle are 100% correct. I was thinking about how like the white bars really kind of cause it to look really chaotic where there's a little bit of a line or uh, kind of frame break as opposed to it just being like black with white uh, breaking out of the lines in a couple of places. Um, but it's Lanfear, so dark, ominous, not fitting quite correctly, a little bit chaotic, mostly black with a tiny bit of light somehow in there. That all feels pretty Celine as we have seen her so far. Uh, now that you know what this is about, any last thoughts on the symbol before we dive into the chapter? Uh, I like your point about the white bars because there is something there where it is breaking that frame, but the complete frame actually mm. contains it. And so I think that's an interesting choice in terms of what we've seen in terms of chapter icons, that it's, it is breaking the rules, but it is still somehow contained. And the way white and black are there, she breaks the rules of the light, but the dark still contains her kind of feels possible. That is so smart in ways that we can talk about in like 11 books like let's we'll get <laughs> there right. clearing my 2029 got it <laughs> uh chapter 20 visitations uh a beautiful woman enters the room she comments on matt's nakedness he thinks rand would know what to do and then covers up um she says she was in the right white tower for another reason and wanted to see him while she was there she introduces herself as celine and he notes that she isn't an eyes to die she's not wearing a ring and she says that uh she is definitely not an eyes to die she insists that she is not a novice which is what matt asks her um and then she says that they their interests overlap, Matt and hers. Uh, she says he already wants glory, and Matt tries to insist that he's kind of unimportant and doesn't matter, but she says he is more important than any eyes to die. Uh, she denies being a dark friend or following Baalzaman. She says that there is one man she could stand beside, but she will never follow anyone. Um, she says she's going to use Matt, but not the way the eyes to die will, and she at least will give him what he wants. Um, she says uh, his father was here, and that the Aes Sedai are going to lie to him and not tell him that he were here was here. And then she starts listing some other details um, uh, that kind of suggest that the Aes Sedai are kind of tricking him or trying to lie to him. Um, he kind of realizes that he's going to seem crazy if he tries to tell the Aes Sedai that Selene was here. And just as he does, Selene hears something in the hallway and runs away. Um, Matt decides that he needs to get out of here. He starts trying to gather up his boots. He gathers his dice thinking that that is all he needs to be able to make enough money to feed himself and get out of town. Um, as he starts to kind of gather things up, um, the a Merlin seat and the Keeper of Chronicles enter the room. Um, she says that she knows Matt plans to run, but he can't because he's going to need to eat three to four more giant meals and he's not allowed to leave the city and there's no way he'll be able to afford to feed himself that much. Um, she uh, initially does not tell Matt about his father being there, even after he kind of prompts her, but eventually he kind of reveals that he knows, she acknowledges it, and then gives actually quite a few 
few of the details that Celine said that she would not, but does hold back on a few things that Celine predicted she would. Um, Suan asks Matt about the horn and suggests that not only is Matt the one who blew the horn the first time, but he is now linked to the horn, and so it's possible that dark friends will be coming after him, and she reveals in particular the fact that if Matt were to die, even dark friends could use the horn to benefit them. And so she kind of thinks he's going to be a target and suggests that he should stay in Tarvalon for a long time. Uh, Matt insists he's not a hero. He shouldn't have anything to do with this. Um, and then basically uh, she seems to threaten him and says, if you go anywhere else, you will be killed. The dark friends are after you. And then she kind of ominously leaves him to puzzle over the trouble. And he is so distracted by what is going wrong in his life that he doesn't eat a pie. And I am a man who loves pie. So that is the worst part of this entire chapter. Um, that's more like it in terms of me summarizing a chapter that felt like it took an appropriately long amount of time. <laughs> uh, what did you think about this chapter where we get Matt interacting with two exceptionally powerful women? Wasted pie okay. is on his notes. I love it. <laughs> last note in my chapter, which I alluded to last, it was he wasted pie and that's unforgivable. Uh, Hey, yes, I completely agree. I mean, this easily wins the night. Um, I don't even think it was a competition, mm -hmm. and there's a lot here to chew into. Um, but I want to just kind of take the global level and say, wow, what a fun read where you get this setup of look how controlled you are and look how awful they are, and they're going to lie. And, you know, here are all the things they're going to do to lie and, and hide the truth from you. And then the second half, completely inverts that and they yeah. share you know in my notes i said they seem truthful if limited right, right. but it does feel like if celine was setting up this trap for the i Sedai, the i Sedai completely escaped the trap that yeah. doesn't mean they're innocent that doesn't mean they're a force for good but it means they escaped the trap so um that is a really neat bit of writing and to take your expectations in that way i thought was really fun and, and made this stand out yeah, and I think what really works in this chapter is the way that we get kind of two women interacting with Matt primarily, right? We get Suan and we get what well, I'm going to call Celine, even though, you know, we've kind of been da dancing between Celine and Lanfear for her. And those two characters, I think, really work in this section because as we've kind of seen before, Suan feels like the more kind of scary one of those two right while celine we have obvious reasons to doubt her and be fearful of her intentions suan is the aggressive one she's the one who is going to withhold information until she thinks she can get an advantage from it and so what really i think works as you're identifying is not just setting up the game and then having it feel like suan kind of dances her way out of it effectively but i think it works even on a reread because celine is setting up a trap that most i said i probably would have fallen into and so i think that tension of not only is it kind of a fun dance to watch but it's a really smart trap in the first place is kind of rewarding in multiple ways uh the internet meme it reminds me of slash just great moment from a television show is uh lucille bluth uh saying uh look at me getting off on i'm getting off on withholding from you uh which is this inversion of a trap yep. one of the other kids set for her um because it has that same kind of attitude it's like yeah i i'm gonna just do whatever the heck i want and um you know it sure yeah that's that's me you got me nope not really so uh yep. that's that's the tone i read into that 
Um, you know, and and I just want to also acknowledge because uh, again, I accidentally queued up my uh, television episode wrong. Uh, we are starting to see hints of Celine slash Lanfear coming out on the show in some of the trailers that have been there, mm-hmm. and I I just want to note that her presence in that second book was so strong to me that I got excited seeing that trailer and thinking like, oh, good, I want to advance that. And you know, again, if if you're not a show watcher, just know the show is like. Uh, honors the spirit of these books, but remixes a lot. And I was like, oh, maybe we'll get a little more Celine hint before we actually get to where we are. Um, so along those lines, um, you directly quoted the thing I wrote down about her, which is uh, there is one man I could stand beside, but not I wouldn't follow anyone. Um, yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because mentally I had just chalked her up as uh, a dark friend or like one of those top lieutenants of... Uh-huh. Be'alzaman. Um, and when she says what she says, I'm not sure that's about Be'alzaman. I think that yeah. sounds more like Rand to me. Um, and that's really interesting to think, well, what then is this character's goals? She's not going to follow, but is she, you know, stand beside kind of naturally sounds like king and queen to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she she's always described as beautiful and seems seductive. You know, we start with a, a nude scene here. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I feel like there's a little bit of that. Um, does she just want to be the Lady Macbeth here? Uh, yeah, there that, that's a Shakespeare reference. Look at that. Not just Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Someone's got an English degree. <laughs> uh, so it feels a little like that. And I'm very yeah. curious then there. And I think that folds into I'm here for some other reason. Like I just, I'm just here for it by accident. Yeah. Um, is that connected to the attempted assassination? Is that that thing I'm forgetting? The assassin? The that gray is. man is the one that the immediately jumped to my man mind. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so is she connected to those plots um, that we've just seen uh, unfold a little uh, last week or the week before? Um, or is is it something even bigger and darker? Is she here to finish what the Black Aja couldn't? But um, yeah. uh, all of that, and I'm just rambling at this point, but all of that's like, yeah, not only is this, is, is it possible for a gray man to sneak in, but seemingly a huge agent of chaos is just, chilling just moving around doing whatever she wants uh this tower has some problems yeah and there was one moment in kind of that discussion that really stood out to me and it's uh kind of right before she gives the line that you were describing kind of being willing to stand beside someone but not uh behind anyone um but she uh kind of drops a line where she says uh I'm going to use you, but not the way the Aes Sedai will and not the way he will. And I think the easy reading of he is uh, Baalzaman. Um, but the way that uh, both I think she and Matt, there's like italics or emphasis or a question mark, something on both of them when they say the word he. I think there's a really interesting twist of like, is she talking about Baalzaman? Is she talking potentially about Rand using Matt? Is she talking about someone else? And so that is what stood out to me along with those two things you're talking about, right? I think her motivations are starting to become a little more clear. And just the fact that, as you say, like agent of chaos is, I think, the perfect term for where she is. She's now popped into all three of the boys' plot lines at one point or another. So she's clearly playing big games, not little ones. Um, I think at this point... Oh, go ahead, please. Back to the fact that she's not from this dimension. So no, all all that you just said, plus she is the land fear from another d- 
dementia, which is crazy and feels like something we kind of forget in the mix of these kind of supernatural forces. Yeah. Uh, my comment about stacked records uh, aside, because we we kind of hadn't thought about that a lot in, yeah. in recent wanderings. Um, so I don't know. That's crazy. And, and yeah, it brings to mind like the Joker from the Batman movies. Like, you yeah. know, when when done well, it's like I just want to watch the world burn. And it feels like that's a little more of her energy. Uh, and this is one of my favorite things that Robert Jordan does in general. I feel like if we're thinking about kind of the evolution of fantasy, where like on one end is like the J.R.R. Tolkien, there is a great king who will rise again and there is a great evil who he must fight. And then, you know, we think on the other end is like George R.R. R. Martin, where it's like everyone's terrible and everyone is trying to kill everyone all the time. Robert Jordan is a really interesting middle point in that, where he's like, there is good, there is evil, but evil isn't monolithic. There's Beelzeman and Celine and uh, Padden Fane and Shadar Lagoth and uh, the White Cloaks. And right, he just keeps layering things on top of each other. And that's just where I get excited in in these books is is at some point we're in book three and i'm already being like how is he going to resolve all of this and <laughs> you know it's going to keep getting more complicated not simpler as this goes on so i i just think this is a really kind of fun place to be of like okay let's now start start seeing how high we can stack these things before things start to fall apart um i don't have anything else to say about celine at this point so jump over to suan anything that immediately struck you as interesting about her half of this chapter? I'm over the fish talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, uh, again, we stay apolitical on this, but I always hated the Sarah Palin. I'm going to be folksy for you, everybody. Uh, I'm just Mm -hmm. folksy. You can't blame me for anything I do. I'm just folksy. And that's (laughs) Is that what I'm starting to feel from the Amarillan seat? Yeah. Um, Amarillan seat, excuse me, uh, is just that this is like a put on, right? It's a, there's a, in Glass Onion, um, people who misunderstood that fine piece of cinema, uh, misunderstood that Benoit Blanc um, feels like a caricature for the first half. And that's him doing that on purpose to disarm the other characters in the mystery. And, um, I feel like that's what's happening with the Amerlin seat is like, I'm going to ham up the folksy fish talk and that way um, people won't see what the other hand is doing. Um, But it's like really like again with this. So it's, it's already grading on me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing that I appreciate about Suan is that she is a character who her method of persuasion is I am going to tell you what I want. I am going to tell you why it's better than the other options. So do it. And that's kind of how my brain works. And so if you need to bury that in a bunch of fish metaphors, I'm willing to go with the fish metaphors with you. Like, give me a direct communicator any day of the week. Uh, You are someone who is in one of my Dungeons and Dragons groups. So I'm going to say something that might be deeply offensive to the core of you. The thing that hurts me the most in Dungeons and Dragons of anything is when I am DMing and we're like working on something really big and then out of nowhere a character like reverts to like the default thing they were at level one right like they're like oh I was this farmer who did this folksy whatever and they just become that in the middle of an important (laughs) moment right that destroys me every time and that is exactly what Suan is doing here right she's Mm. like I have this really direct awesome nope I'm going to do the silly thing now yeah yeah right like sometimes that's great but it's not a joke here and so it doesn't work um and 
I if it's even more confusing to me in some ways because it's like nobody else but us knows about yeah. the like fish backstory. So so my, what I said before where she's using it to disarm people, like it can't be effective. Like that might still be the character's yeah. motivation, but like yeah. Matt doesn't know she comes from fish people, uh not yeah. literal fish people, but fishing people. Um and so like how is that going to operate here? Um, I, I will then say that the rest of the scene, I really enjoyed kind of playing out, um, watching the, the fact that I said, I can't lie and trying to find that border of where are, where is she telling the truth, but, you know, committing what is generally called a lie of omission, right? Mm -hmm. Although that it wouldn't be a lie under I said, I rules. And it's like, okay, she's being very careful in these few places. And, and I, I think that I'm sure on a reread is kind of delicious to track. Well, I think the thing that Suwan does so well in this sequence in it, it it's it's a strategy that we all need to start adopting is whenever someone asks her a question that she doesn't want to answer, she just gives more detail to the answer of the previous question. So it still sounds like she's being helpful. Right. Like Matt asks her, was my dad here? She's like, oh, yeah, he was whatever. And then he asks a really like direct question about like, what are you going to do with me? And she says, oh, your dad was asking about this. He was doing that. Mm-hmm. And like that feels like just such an eye Sedai thing. And it's something I've actually picked up on Moraine doing three or four times and hadn't been able to say it in the first book when she did it. So I'm so glad you're catching this now instead of me biting my tongue about it. It's great. Uh, I mean, doesn't that sound like every academic conference you've ever been to, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I couldn't answer the question that was asked, so I'll just fill in the detail from my talk and regurgitate it, usually long enough to think of an okay response. But yeah, but yeah it's it's an old academic trick to just fill in talk uh, rambles from what you know and avoid the actual question until you're ready. Which honestly is possibly another hypothesis about fish ramble, right? Like if every time yeah. someone asks you something and you don't have your best answer ready, like tell them a story about Silver Pike and you'll probably have a good answer to their question by the time you're done. You're you're telling me to do that in class? Like that's, all the that's time. My Just fall Silver persona Pike. now? Nothing <laughs> yeah. else. Uh, on to fish talk, everybody. Uh, I'm picturing a first year, like checking the syllabus. Like, did I sign up for the fish section of, of college writing? Uh, I was yeah. just about to drop a Charlie Moore outdoors joke. And then I realized no one outside of like <laughs> us very small area of Boston will know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, true. But I appreciate the reference. Um, y- there's not a lot else here. I have, Um, you know, clearly felt like both women were manipulating Matt and you know manipulate doesn't always have a negative connotation right right getting somebody to logically reach the conclusion you want them to isn't necessarily a bad thing Mm -hmm. um but it did feel like this is a puppy being called by two owners right like do you want to live with mom or dad after the divorce or something along those those lines and at the heart of that is the mat we figured out from the last chapter is not all that like, okay. So yeah. what do you do to, when you mix those two elements? That seems like a pause. So everybody gets their bingo cards out a powder keg. <laughs> <laughs> I I think for me, what is so fascinating about this chapter is that it's two people manipulating Matt by telling them by telling him that they are going to manipulate him. And mm. so what he's left with is no longer like which one of them is telling the truth, because I think they both are. 
And so it's really interesting to see him, as you say, he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the first impression of Matt Cawthon that we get in basically three books is of him being like, this sounds like a bad thing. I'm going to run away now. And that's a character I can get behind, honestly. Um, <laughs> any last thoughts on Matt Cawthon's dilemma before we wrap up this episode of Through the Glass Columns? Uh I'm just going to say Matt was more compelling here than he has been in a while. I look forward to the next Matt chapter whenever that may be. You know, again, my experience of the Game of Thrones books is you get to the end of an Arya chapter and you're like, damn it, why are we going to Sansa? And then you get to the end of the Sansa chapter and you're really mad at the next one's Arya because you're like, oh, I yeah. wanted the rest of that plot. Um, so I think I was feeling that a little bit here. Like I hadn't been craving a Matt chapter, but it was fun being with him for a while and, and advancing this. Um that being said, there's a lot of balls in the air, um, yeah. you know, like if I haven't previewed what our next two chapters, what the POVs are, but it's like there are a lot of plot lines that are geared up now. And I think they're going to start moving at a pretty good clip soon. So tell us what to read for next week and then close out the show, Tyler. Well, you started a sentence just a moment ago by saying, you know, you get really excited to read such and such chapter. Uh, you are probably not going to be excited to read the first of our two chapters next week. Uh, next week, we will be reading chapter 21, A World of Dreams, which is a world of Greg's <laughs> nightmares, and chapter 22, The Price of the Ring. Um, two quick kind of previews as we get into this. Number one is that we are going to be seeing a second version of a scene that we have seen in a previous book book, which is a very kind of interesting thing to do. The other is that if you have been following along with us watching the television show, the conclusion of season one features a very interesting sequence, which we will be getting the original version from the book next week through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time through the glass columns.